0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. So remember that expected surge of migrants at the border when Title 42 ended? Well, it turns out the opposite happened. The number of migrants has dropped 50 percent in the past few days. But that does not mean the crisis has ended. It's just spread north. In New York, about 300 migrants are now living in public school gyms and parents are not happy. Our panel has a lot of thoughts on this. Plus, a security guard shoots and kills a suspected shoplifter at a Walgreens in downtown San Francisco. Shoplifting is obviously not a capital crime. So why is the D.A. not pressing charges? And former President Barack Obama gets personal talking about his marriage to Michelle.
1: Let me just say this. Uh, It sure helps to be out of the White House. Uh, uh, And uh, to, to have a little more time with her.
0: I feel like our panel's gonna have a lot of thoughts on this too. More from that interview coming up. But let's start with the migrant problem. In New York, 300 migrants now housed in public school gyms and parents are crying foul. I was scared. I was nervous. I felt like it was the wrong decision
2: that they made at the time where nobody knew anything. My concern is our well being about our children. that that go to school to get an education at PS188. Our families that's walking around here not knowing who we're taking in for sheltering for our safety and our well-being.
0: Okay, let's bring in our panel. We have New York City Councilman Ari Kagan, a Republican, who up until a few months ago was a Democrat. We have Errol Lewis, political anchor for Spectrum News, New York One. The ever-fabulous SE Cup. And James Sorowicki, a journalist who writes for the Atlantic and Fast Company. Great to have all of you. Um, Okay, so, um, Councilman, um, it's hard to find a community that wants to house these migrants. So what is the answer?
3: So, first of all, uh, I would like to say that uh, many parents even today rallied against the idea of housing migrants in this school gym. Uh, for a very long period of time because there is no time frame, there is no timeline when it's going to end. And also now we're talking about processing center, <laughs> meaning it could be some of them will be moved to permanent shelter or permanent housing, but new ones will come for processing and there is no time frame. Every time I'm asking City Hall or Office of Emergency Management, what is the time frame? When the school will be returned to the community? And answer is we don't know. This is very fluid situation. What if tomorrow another thousand or two thousand will come to New York City? And it's no longer, by the way, by buses. It's also like by food, uh, also by cars, by even by airplanes. So it's not just from Texas. It's from all over the places. But
0: meaning when you say by airplanes, meaning other governors are sending people by airplane to New York.
3: No, it means some people learn how great to be in New York as a century city. How great, how generous New York is with everything. So the people coming uh, to New York from all over the places, including some migrants who already left New York City, they're coming back. They just love New York City.
0: Huh, um, Errol? Uh, should Mayor Adams have a plan for this?
4: He's going to have to have a plan, right? If you, you know, I mean, failure to plan is planning to fail. Right? We knew for months that this wave was going to continue. There's no scenario under which anybody could have imagined that governors from Florida or Texas were going to stop sending migrants here uh, after November. And This has been going on for well over six months. And so uh, for the city now to scramble and say, hey, we need another 800 rooms, we need another 200 beds, we have to suspend uh, a lot of our sensible rules that prohibit having families sleeping on the floor and so forth, For them to scramble in that way and to be so completely overwhelmed, I think, is testing the patience of a lot of New Yorkers because they expect their government to plan and to have a contingency. And if not, to really sit down and explain to people, not just pop up, you know, for like a little five minute interview and say, hey, we have a real problem. We wish Washington would help us. That doesn't even begin to get the job done.
0: Just so our viewers and you guys know, this um, school gym where some of the hundreds of migrants are being housed in New York and Coney Island, it's, separate, it's a separate building apart from where the kids are going to school. It apparently, according to the Department of Education, was not being used. I don't know if any of that makes it more palatable, but your thoughts, Essie.
5: Well, I think I'll be the voice of the viewer here when I say this is so tragic and frustrating that like, these are our best solutions. I've covered this for 20 years. I know you've covered it a long time, Errol, too. And I have watched the leaders of both political parties kick the can and refuse to solve a broken immigration system because it is politically profitable to leave it broken. Then you can run on it, and then you can fundraise off of it. There's no reason why we have to continually have a broken immigration system. And I think the The resentment this breeds among New Yorkers and uh, uh, lots of other Americans isn't out of a lack of compassion for these poor migrants and asylum seekers who are pawns, but out of a frustration that this is all we've come up with, asylum, uh, sanctuary cities, or kids in cages, Uh, housing people in public school gyms, or dropping them off, dumping them off at the vice president's front yard. This is as good as we can do. It's a joke.
6: Uh, it's a very complicated problem, though. I mean, I think, you know, when he when Adams is saying it's a fluid situation, it's because there's no way to envision how the flow is going to stop. Right. I mean, as long as you have the situation you have in I was going to say in Central America, but the biggest flow of migrants in recent months has not come from there. It's actually come from Venezuela, from Colombia, from Cuba. As long as you have that and we are not doing anything about that it's hard to imagine how this stops. And, you know, one of the paradoxes is that these are people who are here legally. They've gone through the process. And then the bigger problem we have is that... uh, Some. Yeah, but I think the people that are being housed... in in these gyms are almost certainly people who have gotten asylum.
0: Well, they haven't gotten asylum. asylum. No, 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 they've applied
6: for asylum. asylum. But the point is, like, we have all these people who are applying for asylum, and we don't have anywhere near near enough judges to process them. So we've created this situation where they end up living in gyms. And no one has been willing to invest the money that's necessary to process them. So we have a system. I think Essie's exactly right. It's a broken system. It is broken.
0: Yeah. Isn't it interesting, friends, that the surge that was so anticipated and drummed up um, about what was going to happen when Title 42 ended has not happened over the past few days? I mean, there's all sorts of different explanations for it. According to the Assistant Secretary for Border and Immigration Policy, the decreased level of encounters at the border, we hope— reflect both an appreciation of the new consequences that are in place for unlawful entry at the border, as well as enforcement actions being taken by our, far- our foreign partners. It's just interesting that maybe the Biden policy is actually stricter than what was in place for Trump with Title well, 42.
4: It absolutely was. Yeah. Title 42 goes away. You revert to something called Title 8. And that means if you were caught uh, illegally trying to enter, you were barred from any kind of legal entry for five years. That's pretty serious. They did a lot of messaging around that. And lo and behold, the messaging got across, which is, I think, an example to the administration of how focused,
3: targeted, sensible messaging can actually change the situation on the ground. I would say that uh, 30 years ago, when I applied uh, to come to America. And let's just talk about your story for a second. But so, that's rela- related yes, to but the, but our parents story. Were,
0: your parents were, were, or grandparents were Holocaust survivors.
3: My, my father was a Holocaust survivor. I would like to say that when 30 years ago I came to America, I went through extensive uh, interview, background checks. I gave my blood test for all kinds of infectious diseases to check, AIDS, tuberculosis, you name it. So right now, like you're saying, everybody went through this process. Absolutely not. It should be organized. Everything. It cannot be just open border, everybody coming, then we will ask you any kind of questions. It's not happening right now. What happened to me, to many other people who came to America legally, many of my constituents telling me stories about their grandparents going through Ellis Island, a lot of interviews, a lot of background checks, a lot of health checks. It's not happening right now. That's one of the reasons what's going on. Also, like, again, it's an open borders policy. You, you, you do not go through any interview before. We have American embassies all over the world in every country including in Mexico consulate services you know why not to interview people before they came to America and to check who they are and that is what
0: Biden is suggesting. Mm-hmm. That actually is exactly now what President Biden is suggesting. But I think there's been court well, challenges. He's, yeah, yeah, there's that. court
6: challenges. But any, And he has this app idea, basically, that you have to apply yeah. via an app or else you're not going to be allowed, allowed in as well. Which, I mean, if you actually look at the plan that Biden unveiled or offered up in February, it was actually much tougher than pretty much anything that had been done before. Um, but... It's inevitably going to run into court. But
0: but to the councilman's point, why aren't we doing that level of background check that his family came through?
4: Well, look, it would it would be almost impossible at this point. I mean, given the numbers, you know, in fact, just even a small change um, to reduce the processing to time from one hour to half an hour makes a huge difference. If you start talking about tens of thousands of people. 30 minutes for each one of them, it very quickly swells up into days and weeks that that you're gonna say, but we just don't have the resources, not the immigration judges, not the health screening resources, not the law enforcement, none of it is there. And and it really goes back to what Essie was talking about. There are a lot of people who are just fine with that, Mm -hmm. as long as they can continue to profit from it politically and say that there's chaos at the border, Uh, please donate at the bottom of this email.
3: And you're saying it's winding down, if you live in New York City, if you live in Southern Brooklyn, you feel completely opposite, you know, like it's, it started with 50 people a day, 70 people a day, 100 people a day. Now we're talking about very soon will be 1000 people a day. So it's completely opposite, like a snowball. And very soon will be not just schools. It's not just in Coney Island. It's in Brooklyn. Many schools now, uh, gyms are considered as a normal place for people to live. Mobile showers and stuff like this, you know, but also, I'm constantly hearing from city administration all options are on a table. Any public spaces, even parks and more... So I believe we need to uh, uh, legally close, legally I'm talking about, closing our borders, processing everyone. If you need to invest more into border patrol or immigration judges, et cetera, do it. Why not? Why don't, not to make everything legal? I, I would say kosher, you know?
0: Yes. Councilman, thank you very much for sharing your story and for the, those thoughts. All right, coming up, a suspected shoplifter shot and killed by a security guard in the middle of Walgreens in San Francisco. Why the DA is deciding not to press charges and what this has in common with the Subway Chokehold case. The district attorney in San Francisco announcing that her office will not file charges against a security guard who shot and killed a suspected shoplifter at Walgreens. Prosecutors say the guard acted in self-defense. My panel is back with me, and we're also joined by CNN senior political analyst John Avalon. John, this is a confusing case because they say the security guard acted in self defense, but also that the shoplifter did not have a weapon. So it's something of a mixed message. The, the security guard believed that the yes. shoplifter had a weapon, but that's, is that reason to, to shoot and kill? I mean, is that good enough?
7: Well, to it, shoot it, and kill it, in, in many cases, self defense is predicated upon a feeling. Uh, that your life could be in danger, and we saw the video. Brooke Jenkins, the the, the DA, put out the video showing uh, a a shoplifter, this young man, obviously tragically killed. and that, you know, that that is not an outcome anybody wants. Um, but we have the video, fighting but with, wrestling we with the, the security guard. Yeah, let's
0: play a little bit sure. of this. So, as you say, there's there's a a pushing, mm-hmm. and there's a fight, some punching, mm-hmm. a fist fight and then they are on the ground and then obviously we won't show the the shooting part um but at some point he he basically
6: he lets the he let the shoplifter go and then the shoplifter turned lunged back at him learned, lunged back at him uh, and that's when he shoots. That he
4: thought he was going to be stabbed
7: yes um but but look the the controversy here beyond the video um Some of the people who are outraged at the decision not to prosecute are saying uh, in the articles that, you know, this man was killed for $14. He was killed for poverty. I think that's a dodge. Um, He was killed because of a he was trying to steal in an atmosphere of rampant lawlessness. Not a capital offense. Not a capital offense. But the idea that there is a right to steal and there that stopping people from stealing in stores is is itself acceptable has nothing to do with the same idea as leaving alone these open-air drug markets. Here's where I'm going to be a little more conservative than probably some of my friends here, having worked in New York City at a certain time. You, it, it, anarchy is what the Foundry Fathers understood leads to tyranny. If there is an absolute abandonment of enforcing any laws, you have civic disorder, you have violence, and that creates conditions that end up with incidents like this. Do you think this person's death is going to stop the next shoplifter? Uh, possibly.
4: Because I think people will think twice. What do you think, Earl? No, it won't. Um, people don't try and steal fourteen dollars um, worth of stuff um, or make idle threats about "I'm going to stab you" uh, because they expect to get killed. Um, I don't think that's uh, a legally enforceable standard. Well, you know, I mean, if if um, more people get shot and killed in the course of shoplifting. I don't think it's going to change anything. I think it will reveal to us as a society that we're using an unreasonable amount of force and we're going to have to try some other tools to try and deal with this problem. but.
5: But that is true. I think everyone would agree that killing someone for shoplifting is disproportionate. But you don't know in that situation if a person is armed or what their intentions are. And on the one hand, you have to enforce the laws. Mm -hmm. That is leading to the lawlessness that leads people to feel unsafe, that leads them Mm -hmm. to do things that end up in, in people dying needlessly because they feel so unsafe we're not addressing the root cause of some of this which is mental health homelessness and poverty mm-hmm. and we're also not enforcing our laws but this is this, this is, is a terrible combination this is, this is
4: right. a judgment call by an elected prosecutor she could have made the opposite yes. she could have mm-hmm. made the opposite conclusion have. and that would have been perfectly lawful too she would have, she, they could have just said in our discretion we think sure. that this was unreasonable sure. let's give it to a jury sure. they just made the the the, the opposite conclusion I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I mean, she got elected specifically. She replaced Chesa Boudin, right. yes. who clearly might have gone in a different direction. Yes. So I, think, I think that's we can't we can't put this off on you know on capitalism or on the no. district attorney or no. anybody else. This is all of us. So we have to decide right. what
7: we're going to do with this. Problem. But and, and clearly, mental illness, sorry, is, is a major contributing factor to this. But the atmosphere of lawlessness, where people feel it's not just this individual case. We've seen videos of people basically pulling things off shelves and stealing with impunity out of stores, creating an atmosphere. Of lawlessness. Yeah. We're in a town where it spends a lot of money on social services, but mental health, homelessness, drug addiction, all that toxic brew is totally out of control. This is, this is why there's a wisdom to broken windows theory, however yeah. unfashionable it
6: is. I mean, okay. I think the thing to me that was amazing about the videos, if you watched it, was as the fight was going on, people are leaving the store and just walking into the store. Literally, walk into the store while they are on the ground, the guy has them in a chokehold, and they seem totally indifferent to what's happening. And that, I think, does tell you that a certain level of disorder and crime has become normalized mm-hmm, yep. in the city and that they're just, people are just like, oh, well, that's just what happens, well, basically. And that does, I, I have to say, that does seem problematic. I mean, it yes. does seem like yes. a problem.
0: That was my next question, which is, all, some of these are connected, as I said, to the subway chokehold, which is that <laughs> there's homelessness, there's mental illness, there's also petty crime. I mean, the, and some of these aren't crimes, but there, there's a, an atmosphere of these things. And you're asking people who live there, residents, yeah. to navigate through some of this.
5: And you don't is always feel like to the law is going to be enforced. You don't always feel it. I know. I'm in New York every day. You're too. I don't always feel like there's a cop on every corner or someone who's going to step in. Uh, it might have to be a citizen. That is awful. And that leads to some terrible decisions by citizens because they're not law enforcement right? But it shouldn't have to be that way. Yeah, no, and,
7: and this, this is all taking us back to those that era of Bernard Getz and, and, yeah. and Death Wish. And the, the, but there's a difference between vigilantism and a security guard trying to do their job, fighting with folks at the door who are showing absolutely no respect for the basic social contract. And it's not about poverty, and it is about mental illness in this case, but he was not, it, it's not about $14. It, well, you know, it's you know about what the it's about. The what, what
4: it's about is fear. You read the transcript yeah, sure. of what this person was feeling when he decided to take this man's yes. life. And what he says is, I was afraid. Yes. And, you know, you go back to the subway car where we just had somebody who, you know, screamed and said he was hungry and thirsty. Instead of giving him a sandwich, he was choked to death.
5: No, he also and, said, and, I don't care if and, I go to jail or die. I also don't care if, what, I, if
4: I live or die. Well, what and, are you about to do And people were so frightened, they yes. said, we're going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And some people are praising that person as a hero. So, yes. Um, you know, I
0: mean, agreed. It is about fear. I like if somebody one, rings a doorbell.
4: To, I talked to one activist who I think was right on point when he said... Scared people make mistakes. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, scared people make horrible mistakes. Yeah. And it it is up to leadership, including media leadership, mm-hmm. to not encourage no. and throw uh, and throw uh, gasoline on the fear, but to try and explain to people, you know what? Try not to be petrified in a city no, where there are No, that's not
5: the, lesson. the lesson is thousands. solve the problem leaders. <laughs> yeah. No, solve th- yeah, the problem. Th- th- this is not, not try not to be afraid. I am afraid. Th- this is... Tell people to solve the problem. Yeah,
7: th- this is this is about why are we not applying public policies? We've gone through cycles in cities where there's civic disorder, rising crime, and all that. This is not about coverage of that inflames it and makes it worse, although that may be a contributing factor to the atmosphere of fear. The reason broken windows works is a theory that was put out in 1982 that's very controversial Giuliani, now, it yes. shouldn't be. It was, but James Q. Wilson in The Atlantic picked up Urban Giuliani, Bill Bratton, and a lot of other Brett, people yeah. and helped bring down... Uh, crime in cities across the nation was the idea, if there is civic disorder, if there's a broken window, and that window is not repaired quickly, it sends a subtle but unconscious signal that it's okay to break windows. And soon you have no windows left on that street. Yeah.
4: But no, but no, that's but no, no, civic structures no, nowhere in that Nowhere in that theory, and I actually took classes with James Q. Wilson in yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the year that it all came out, and nowhere in it does it say, if you are afraid, use deadly force. Of
7: course not. No, no does it say of course that. not. So this we, is about but, the atmosphere. But
4: we should, well, we should, so then we should recognize, in San Francisco or anywhere else... If what you're doing is letting your fear run away with you to the point that you see a shoplifter as a deadly threat and feel empowered to act on it with the color of law behind you, then we are not doing we're blow, gr- we're broken a, we're windows. You are not
7: upholding civilization. We're actually You are not, we're, we're, we're you actually are not agreeing. curing the problem we're, we're in we're any actually way, agreeing. shape, or form. We're actually agreeing. The atmosphere of fear and disorder causes tragedies like this. Yeah. All
0: right, I have to go, but I'll take it. Where are it. you going? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll be here. Oh yeah. oh, I'm just I gonna show you. myself out, guys. <laughs> that was so good, we can't do any better. I'm done. Uh, thank you all very much. Okay, the Obamas getting candid about their marriage. That's next.
1: Did not fully appreciate, I think, hmm. as, as engaged of a father as I was. The degree of stress and tension for her
0: We're talking too much during this. We have a lot to say about this next segment. Former President Barack Obama is opening up about the marital challenges he and First Lady Michelle faced during his years in office. He responded to remarks that Michelle made about their marriage a few months ago.
5: People think I'm being catty by saying this. It's like there were 10 years when I couldn't stand my husband. Yeah. You, you do know? say that. You say years. years. And guess when it happened? When those kids were little and for 10 years while we're trying to build our careers and, you know, worrying about school and who's doing what and what, what you know, I was like, oh, this isn't even. No, right. And yeah. guess what? Marriage isn't 50 yeah. 50 yeah. ever.
0: OK, so then President Obama explained how his role as a father and husband has changed.
1: Let me, let me just say this. Uh, it sure <laughs> helps to be out of the White House. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, to to have a little more time with her, Michelle. When when our girls were growing up, that was priority number one, two, three, and four. Of course. And so I I, I did not fully appreciate I think hmm. as as engaged of a father as I was, the degree of stress and tension for her.
0: Hmm. Okay, well, my panel is back with me. Errol, you found this hard to watch.
4: Yeah, you know, it's, it, you, you want to be encouraged by these people. You want to see, like, you know, leadership. And not necessarily a fairytale happy ending, but it's like, if you have, you know, you're the most powerful person in the world. You have the Secret Service. You have a White House staff. You have every chef. need taken care of. You have a chef, right. You have people who chauffeur and protect yeah. your kids everywhere. And there's still a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. You still can't <laughs> figure it out to the point where the spouses are fighting.
6: I'm thinking, wow, that's... That's something. See, That's I deep. actually think Obama kind of played a little game there, which is, if you actually listen to what Michelle said, she was I talk, talking, I think, mainly about before they got to the White House because mm-hmm. she was talking about when their kids were little. And when they got to the White House, Sasha was 10 and Malia was 7 or was it the other mm-hmm. way, other way around. And I actually, as I have two little kids, and I... Felt kind of sympathetic to what Michelle was saying, and sort of I was like, oh wow, so even Barack Obama has his wife says she can't stand her, you know, she she couldn't stand him. And I, I, because i my wife, I think if you asked her, oftentimes would say the same You're thing about so me. So no, I mean that really, like, and I do think there is this way in which uh, even in the most like progressive marriages, where you know both partners want to be doing the same kind of thing, that. There's usually a default parent, and that default parent is usually the mother. And that's really what I think Michelle was talking about, that sense of, like, always being the one who was responsible, Mm -hmm. basically.
5: There's a great series, I don't know if you guys watched it, um, called First Ladies, and it was a Mm -hmm. um, dramatized telling of the Obamas, um, the Roosevelts, and... uh, what was the other oh Betty the Fords Ford. the Fords, and it Michelle Pfeiffer is Betty Ford Come really on. gave a window into this, this early time that Michelle is talking about um, in their marriage, and it was not all good, and that was um, interesting and strange Why? to what, see. What was
0: the tension? Uh, she his
5: was ambition, His ambition. She was also ambitious. She was going yeah, places, and in fact, there was a time where. They thought she was going to be the sort of she was um, his mentor
4: at the law firm. Yes. And for so sure.
5: there yeah. was there was a tension and I just thought it was really refreshing. I love that series, but also refreshing to hear in real time today. Then both of them be honest about their marriages. I love when anyone shares that yeah. relatability in their life. I just think that helps someone else yes. in their life. and so it was great. And I thought that's
7: why I think this resonated so much, right? Here's a couple that can seem close to perfect. And whenever there's these historical figures you put on a pedestal, um, it, to see them as human, as flawed, to have to be open about their struggles and their challenges, even in their mes- marriage, with all that support, um, that, I think, is, is, is not only relatable, I think it's heartening. Because marriage can be hard, and a lot of the, 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 the really deep victories come from getting through the hard times. Yeah. And I remember my grandparents, who were married for over 50 years, telling me when, when, when you know, I, I got married, my grandmother saying, It's never going to be 50-50. If you if you think it's 75, 25, you'll probably end up somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and that's 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 what they're referring to as well, particularly when the kids are young. And who
0: among us had a vibrant romantic marriage when their kids were young? Like that, <laughs> that, that, we that, all that you all are having jobs <laughs> and you have little yeah, kids, right. you're like, see in a few years. When
6: Obama says like, uh, it's much better now that I'm out of the White House, I'm like, it's also better because your kids are in their twenties. So you're and not dealing right. with this. And I I you know, but I do think one of the things that's really interesting about this is this is the first presidential couple where we really have heard this, this kind of honesty, right? Because the Clintons uh, obviously they were pretty aw- Yeah, <laughs> but they were ha- they, they had did. a very complicated but they weren't talking relationship. Like that about, yeah. 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 They this is really I think the most relatable we've ever heard yeah. a president and a first lady talk about. And I think that's why it's so powerful and yeah. like so welcome. But to
0: Errol's point, if you are having marital issues, don't run for president. Like that's not gonna make your marriage. More stronger, like, strong, stronger no. and more um, connected, you're going to
5: be preoccupied for four to eight years. But listen, they were both ambitious yeah. as a family, as a couple. Mm-hmm. And in very similar ways to the Clintons, who were both very ambitious and really had their eye on the prize here, they made some sacrifices. And some of those were personal. Sure. And not great, as we right. know in the case of the Clintons. And in the case of the Obamas, there wasn't the infidelity, um, obviously, or those, you know, awful allegations. But there was some stuff that they both had to give up and they knew they'd have to because they knew where and, they and, were going it was, together. It was,
4: it was an incredibly hard road, too. I mean, if yes, you read yes. through um, of some of his autobiographies, biographies, I mean, they were broke. Like, broke, broke. And Still you know, And her drugs. dad yeah. was he, sick. He, he tells and, a story yeah. about going to uh, the Democratic convention, I think it was in, either, in 2000. His, his credit card, yeah. card bounces. His credit card bounces. He yes. can't rent a car. He's begging to, you know, he leaves. Nobody knows who he is. It's a complete failure. Four yeah. years later, he's the keynote speaker. Uh, Four years yeah. after that, he's the nominee. And... and, and
7: and, and, you know, public... Look, that, that's actually... Remember, one part of that story was when he runs for Senate, he's like, look, this is either up or out. I'll give this up. Because public service at any level entails a lot of personal sacrifice. Yeah. And, and we just rarely hear it expressed that in that raw and self-effacing away from a former president.
0: Yeah, yeah. great point. Yeah. Thank you all for that. All right. Uh, he's been threatened with assassination over his own writing in Iran. And now Salman Rushdie is warning about censorship here in the U.S., We're going to tell you what he's saying right after this. Author Salman Rushdie is speaking out about freedom of expression in a rare public speech since he was stabbed last year. One of his eyes was badly damaged in that attack. He condemns anyone trying to ban books in places like Florida and those who are even revising older works to take out words now seen as offensive.
8: Now, I've been sitting here in in the United States. I have to look at the extraordinary attack on libraries and books for children in schools. Uh, The attack on, on the idea of libraries themselves. I have to say it's also been alarming to see publishers looking to, how shall I put this, baudelarise the work of such people as Roald Dahl and Ian Fleming. Books have to come to us from their time and be of their time. And if that's difficult to take, don't read it, read another book, but don't try and remake yesterday's work in the light of today's attitudes.
0: I'm back with my panel. Certainly interesting to hear him talk. Um, James, he, he knows a thing or two about being under attack for freedom of speech.
6: Yeah. I mean, I, I think both of his points there are really important. Um, in terms of the baudelarizing or revising of books, so Roald Dahl's book has been revised by his estate in somewhat strange ways, taking out not just obviously offensive but words, but random. in conjunction with
0: Scholastic, like yeah. was it his estate that prompted it, or was it Scholastic? I think probably
6: his... it was a kind of combination yeah, of the a, two. Anyway, and on. then Ian Fleming, the, their, his estate is also revising it. I actually don't have any problem with an actual author, Roald Dahl himself, changed Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, the Oompa Loompas were originally basically slaves, and he revised that. That seems totally fine. I think it's very weird to publish books that under uh, an author's name that they did not write, in effect, which is now the case with Roald Dahl. Um, and while the Ian Fleming books, the James Bond books, are incredibly offensive. I mean, incredibly offensive, the early ones especially. Um, I, I think what Rushdie is saying is right. It's They're of their time. You read them or don't read them. Uh, but I think the bigger thing is the... The bans on books in uh, school libraries and in schools that places like Florida, Tennessee, Texas, where some libraries have they've talked about shutting down libraries. I think that's far more <laughs> consequential uh, and far, far grimmer. So I'm glad he was a went after that.
5: Well, I think everyone at this table takes First Amendment rights pretty seriously. Uh, but I got to tell you, it's very disorienting to live in a time where these rights are under assault, I think, from the left and the right Mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, The book bans are awful, regressive, fascist, terrible, terrible. But the revisionism, too, is terrible, not just because it's, you know, sanitizing. It's pretending this time did not exist. Well, it's important to know that this time exists so we don't repeat it. Mm -hmm. And it's important for, in age-appropriate ways... People learn that as they grow up. And, I mean, it's very weird to be my age and, you know, lived in a time with so much democracy, some, some joke a little too much democracy, you know, that, you know, to see these kinds of assaults happening now.
7: But I think that's what was great about Rushdie's comments. You know, someone who's been such a free speech warrior. Literally. Lionized, literally. Lionized yeah. by many on the right in particular who question whether, for example, the satanic verses could be published today. And here in that statement, he's taking aim at the far left and the far right uh, and the feedback loop that exists and and uh, noting the crucial differences. The extremism on the left tends to be uh, of a cultural sort. Right. We're going to rewrite this to account for sensitivities. And there's something Orwellian about that. The extremism on on the, the, the right in this case is is political. It's it's governmental. It's 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 book bans. It's speech codes often in the name of free speech which makes it even more Orwellian. And he's taking aim at both. And I think that itself is incredibly clarifying. I, mean, yeah. yep. he's, he's I mean, he's an important
4: warrior, literally put his life on the line for what he believes in, wouldn't question that at all. Um, I think, though, he's a little pessimistic. You know, I mean... I wanted to hear a call to arms, and I think we should, you know, sort of do everything we can to remind people that there are organizations that you can join and you can support and you can, you know, and not just the big ones like the American Library Association or PEN America mm-hmm. or the you know, Civil Liberties mm-hmm. Union, but mm-hmm. there's like the comic book Legal Defense Fund. You know, there's all kinds of groups that are out there, and it's really important. I was yes. looking and it's, you know, this is the 90th anniversary. It was May of 1933 when they burned 20,000 books at a plaza, you know, Bebel Platz in, uh, in in Berlin. And you know, we knew even then, and it later, of course, became horribly true, they weren't just trying to burn ideas. They were going to come for the authors of those ideas mm-hmm. and the people represented in those books. And that's exactly what the Nazis that's did. Right. And so, you know, this is this is not just like sort of a cultural preference and we don't want to hear about LGBTQ in this town. This is really oh, a I'll lot at stake and people should make sure that they understand that and get involved in the yeah. fight. And,
7: and yeah. the horrific quote that came out of that time that proved so tragically true is in a place where they burn books, they will certain burn people.
6: Yeah. I mean, say, one, one thing that was interesting about that was, you know, in Tennessee where they... The superintendent basically told the uh, librarian that she couldn't read these two books, one that was about a, a, little, a little girl with two fathers and another one about a bear that ends up we adopting did that story yeah, yet. yeah Gosling right so: which was uh, very offensive. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so these incredibly inoffensive books that were literally considered offensive only because they included same-sex couples, basically. Uh, but um, a couple days ago there was a hearing, and parents spoke up against the ban, basically. And they were quite angry, justifiably so. And so I do think there is there's a lot of uh, untapped energy, I think, out mm-hmm. there in, among Americans against banning books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the big problems we've had with the Florida laws and the things we're seeing in places like Tennessee is that a small minority of people... Are able to essentially impose their wills because school superintendents are basically like, you know what, this is too much of a hassle. We're and just sometimes
0: they're on the it. school board,
6: yeah or, or, that, yeah, or advance their agenda, yeah. And, and, and you know, and so
7: it's this feedback loop yeah. that we yeah. need to find a way to break.
0: Friends, thank you very much. All right. Meanwhile, a student suspended after recording their teacher, but that teacher was using the N word. So is the student a troublemaker or a whistleblower? That's next. A high school geometry teacher in Missouri is no longer employed after video surfaced of him using the N-word in class. That video was taped by a student who caught the teacher saying this. Is
3: the word not allowed Okay,
7: so I'm going to say right now, as a teacher, if you want to keep your job, this isn't the... I'm I'm not not calling anyone.
1: I can say
0: the word. The student, who said that the teacher said it a lot, decided to make this recording... Well, that student is also being punished. 15-year-old Mary Walton says she was suspended for three days for violating the school's electronic device policy. S.C. Cupp and Errol Lewis are back with me. So, Errol, the uh, student handbook of the school says that kids are not allowed to use electronic devices inappropriately.
4: Listen, the, the rules are intended to create a situation of learning and safety and growth, and all of that happened without the rules. So on one level, you could probably suspend the rule In this particular case. They choose choose not to do it. And frankly, it sounds a little bit like the school trying to maybe cover up their own hiring policy. How did this person get into a classroom in the first place? They're a little
5: bit embarrassed by it. They should not take it out on the student. That that student's a journalist is what that kid is. And there is a thing called citizen journalism, right? And I thought that was really brave. And I don't think that student... I mean, I don't know. I can't psychologize. But I don't think that student was, you know... um, trying to surveil the class. I think I he think saw an injustice, knew if he didn't have it on on camera, no one maybe would believe him or the teacher it's might contest it. It was a girl. Yeah. Um, so I loved it. I, we, we love whistleblowers in our business. We love... Journalism, And that was journalism. And even,
4: even gave a warning, which I never would have done. I would have just shot it and, you know, tried to get the person
0: fired. And what warning did this? Well, she say? said, you know, you're going to lose your job. Oh, so yeah, that was not, her saying that yeah. to him. I didn't know that. Okay, here's <laughs> what her mother had to say about all of this. I think they're saying, know your place. And I think that they are protecting the. I think they're protecting the adults and the status quo more than they are encouraging the students to learn or grow or apply critical thinking skills. Yeah, I mean, if you want critical thinking skills, what she did was
5: Exhibit A.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, she should spend the three days, you know, writing up the whole experience and, you know, maybe, maybe get it published in the local newspaper.
5: Listen, there are good ways where, as kids and and college kids later where you're supposed to challenge authority, especially when you think it is unjust. You don't want kids, you know, um, breaking all the rules all the time. But I love that that kid had that sense of duty and purpose. Absolutely. Here's what the Springfield Public
0: Schools has to say about this. Student discipline is confidential per federal law. The Springfield Public Schools cannot disclose specifics related to actions taken. The student handbook is clear, however, on consequences for inappropriate use of electronic devices. Here's where they say that the student went wrong. Any consequences applied per the scope and sequence would also consider if minors are identifiable in the recording and what, if any, hardships are endured by other students due to a violation of privacy with the de- dissemination of the video in question. <laughs> Why is that amazing? Keep the <laughs> lawyers out of the classroom, <laughs> right. please.
4: Keep the lawyers out of the classroom. You're not
0: seeing a lot of other minors' faces disclosed in not,
4: that? Not, not, not. I mean, the, the kids are so far beyond this. The technology is so far beyond this. They're applying um, a, a strict you know, narrow reading of the law or their rules as no, if it was... No, that's
5: Nixonian. I mean, I mean it, so it, it, it
4: simply doesn't make any sense. And the kids are going to put all of this on the web and, and laugh about it. And that's the way it's going
0: to go. There you go. Errol, Essie, thank you very thank much. You. Great to see you guys. All right, some of our top reporters are here next to talk about the stories that they are working on for tomorrow, including some special elections and primaries across the country. You can see them hard at work right now, right there. As the results are rolling in, we have all their scoops next. Okay. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters here with me tonight. Jessica Dean, Omar Jimenez, who's stretching for the occasion. (laughs) Danny Freeman. Yes. (laughs) Yep. Get it all out. And Sarah Fisher. Okay, so it's Election Day in several states. The results of some races are already trickling in. Let's focus on Pennsylvania. Among the key races there, the Democratic primary for mayor in Philadelphia and also a state House race that will likely decide if Democrats maintain control. So the GOP primary also we have for governor in Kentucky. And Trump endorsed one candidate. Ron DeSantis backed another. We'll see what happened there. Just yesterday, President Biden endorsed Heather Boyd, who was running for state rep in Pennsylvania. Danny, do we know who won? <laughs> I was saying, we got a bunch of races here. You're going to cover all of them, my I, friend. I
2: love it. Well, <laughs> so I think the most recent result that we just got in, is in that special election in Pennsylvania. Okay, what is it? Uh, that's Heather Boyd, the Democrat. I believe CNN or the AP is projecting that uh, she has now won that seat. And that was so con- uh, consequential. We mentioned it last night because that means the Democrats will retain the State House in Pennsylvania. And again, this was a last minute effort by Democrats. Joe Biden made an endorsement. The governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, also jumped into the race. Now we know the Democrat, Heather Boyd, has beaten the Republican, Katie Ford, in that
0: race. So that was really... Was it a really close race? You know, I...
2: (laughs) Close is not necessarily the word I would use, but it was maybe 5,000 votes have been counted in total in the race so far. It's about 54% to 44% at last check, but I think the expectation is that will widen a little bit as the night goes on.
0: Okay, last night you were also telling us about the Philly mayoral race.
2: Yeah, the Philly mayoral race, that's actually pretty surprising at the moment. I think we have a voter board that we can pull up at this point. Okay, so take a look at this. So we told you last night it was kind of a tight race of about four or five at the top. Sherelle Parker right there, she's a uh, former city council member, former state legislator. Uh, She is now in a sizable lead over uh, her other opponents right there. Uh, Still, there are outstanding votes in Philadelphia, but she is someone who uh, the current mayor of Philadelphia voted for. She's someone who knows politics in the city and outside, not necessarily the progressive firebrand like the person in third place right now, Helen Gim. Helen Gim had Bernie Sanders and AOC in Philadelphia rallying for her. On the weekend. And she, though, is not at that top level right now. I should also say that Philadelphia has had 99 mayors in its long history. Uh, If one of these results hold, one of those top three, this will be the first time that a woman uh, will be the mayor of Philadelphia. And I should say, Democrats, they have a huge voter registration. This is the Democratic primary, but whoever wins tonight likely will win
0: in November. Okay, really interesting. And now bring us up to speed on Kentucky.
2: So moving to Kentucky now, down to the south, that race CNN has called as well. The one that we were all looking at was the GOP primary for governor. Uh, Daniel Cameron, he's the attorney general, the Republican attorney general right there. Uh, We declared him the The winner just a little while ago, he was running against uh, Kelly Craft, who was the former ambassador to the U.N. for President Trump. Now, why is this race particularly interesting, especially when a call so early? This was, as we've been talking about for a couple of days now, kind of the first proxy fight of the Republican presidential uh, nominating process on the uh, the Republican side, uh, because Trump endorsed Cameron and DeSantis endorsed Kraft. And there was a lot of, you know, hey, we have two of potentially front runners in this Republican presidential nomination getting behind two candidates in you know, red state of Kentucky. And now we saw uh, that the Trump backed candidate won. And actually, the Trump PAC, they put out a statement right away. I think we have it as well. Uh, basically gloating specifically over to DeSantis right there. President Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. The results in Kentucky's Republican gubernatorial primary tonight reaffirmed that Republican voters stand with President Trump, not Ron DeSantis. So, so not
0: mentioning the candidate, just <laughs> mentioning
2: Right, the right. DeSantis. They're getting right to the point on that one. So yeah, interesting races all around.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Uh, Jessica, weren't we talking last night about how many people have gone through the Pennsylvania reporting, uh, you know, (laughs)
9: gauntlet? And you're one of them. I spent some of my career there. So from 2013 to 2018, I was I was a reporter and anchor there uh, in Philly, in Philadelphia, and lived in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. and then also went back for. Uh, Joe Biden's campaign, which you'll remember was a lot of Pennsylvania, and then, of course, Delaware, and then most recently the Senate race uh, with John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. And it's a particular place. I mean, it has a particular personality. <laughs> it sure does. And, and accent. It sure, well, we all were doing our best Philly accents. It takes a second to get it. Uh, being from Arkansas originally, it took me many seconds to get it. Uh, but it does. And, and what's interesting about Pennsylvania and why it remains such a swingy, swing state is because you have these two, you know, you have Pittsburgh, you have Philadelphia on uh, kind of the east and west poles there. And then in the middle, it's very rural and very conservative overall. And so it really does um, cut an interesting, it really is an interesting mix of people. And, and it is uh, quite a bellwether for presidential races. And also that Senate race was was obviously a big deal.
2: Well, and now it is one of the uh, few states that has a truly split level of uh, state government. Right? You have a Democratic governor right now, uh, a Democratic house now that was just maintained As of so now, exactly yep. but still a very strong republican uh, state senate so again a lot of Swingy forces still at play in the mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm.
10: And one of those things in, in Kentucky, you have some of that, that split government. Whereas mm-hmm. Kentucky, yes. Red State, you've got a Democratic governor and Andy Bashir, and now you have Daniel Cameron, who's, who's won this Republican nomination. And I mean, I, I'm just curious how this feels like a very high profile fight where, you know, just a, a few weeks ago when the mass shooting happened in Louisville, the governor was very outspoken about how he feels guns should be handled in a state that's notoriously has one of the least restrictive gun laws in in the country. And with with Daniel Cameron, I think my mind immediately goes to the criticism he got around the handling of the Breonna Taylor case and how uh, obviously not all of the officers involved were, were charged. But there was criticism about how he as attorney general uh, handled the grand jury proceeding. So I'm just it, it feels like, you know, some states you have, you know, like in in Philadelphia, it's Democratic primary. They go on to win. But in Kentucky, it feels like this actually is going to be a pretty big fight in that state.
2: Well, it's interesting. You brought up Brianna Taylor in that yeah. case that has already come up in the Republican primary where Cameron was actually attacked from the right mm. by Kraft. Uh, she was saying that uh, Daniel Cameron was uh, basically allowing the Biden administration to come in and meddle with Kentucky affairs. He took a lot of umbrage uh, against that. But if it's already coming up in the Republican primary, I bet you it will come up likely in the general as well. Mm
11: -hmm. Quick question for Jessica, because I know that you're covering so many things, politics, Biden, White House. Like when it comes to (laughs) Pennsylvania, you do it all. When it comes to Pennsylvania, what is Biden's plan for that? Because obviously he needs to start thinking about how he's going to win that state in 2024. Mm -hmm. You know, Fetterman was a good sign, Mm -hmm. but it was so close that I don't think it's enough for him to feel quite comfortable
9: yet. Right, and remember, it was Pennsylvania that put him over the edge and made him president. And look, Philadelphia... Was that was very as a point of pride for that city for so many people in that city. Um, and he is, of course, from Scranton, where he was born, and has a lot of strong ties to Pennsylvania. But I think you make a great point. And what we saw in 2020 is what I think we will likely see in 2024, which is like he went over. And over and over again to Pennsylvania. And I remember we were all, you know, all of us on the campaign were like, oh my God, we're going to Pennsylvania again, you know. But it, it's a great it, place, it it is a great <laughs> commonwealth. Come on. I love the commonwealth. <laughs> but, you know, there are 49 other states. How um, many hogies can you have? <laughs> right, right, right. right. But it is so critical. And it's going to be critical once again. And uh, I, I just, <laughs> for all of those out there who will be following the presidential race in 2024, get ready for more Pennsylvania. And That's right. Say. You too.
0: Yeah. Um, let's quickly talk about what happened in North Carolina tonight. So uh, yes. very critical uh, abortion decision.
2: Yeah. A- another vote, but not an election necessarily. Uh, we were talking about this on this show for a number of weeks now. Uh, basically, the North Carolina state house decided to override that veto that just happened over the weekend with Governor Roy Cooper. Uh, that basically says that there will be a 12 week abortion ban with some um, Uh, other except some minor exceptions Um, and it was quite a scene down there Diane Gallagher our correspondent who covers that area and covering this she was down there and she saw some of the reaction that came right after that vote in the house was taken take a listen
4: the house has overridden the governor's veto and the bill becomes law notwithstanding the governor's objections so be notified
0: So basically, abortion is now banned after 12 weeks, but there are some exceptions. And um, as you can see, the people who have packed the chamber there are not pleased. That's right. And one of the things that's important
2: specifically about this particular decision is that North Carolina, as Diane was talking on this show just a week and a half ago, is one of the states that actually there was, up until this law was passed, a lot more access for a lot of states in the South. So it's going to be perhaps even more challenging to access abortion, uh, not just in North Carolina, but across the South at this time. Yeah, understood.
0: Okay, thank you all very much for all of those updates. Okay, meanwhile, the clock is still ticking. We talk about this a lot and nothing has changed. The country could default on our debt as soon as June 1st. There was a big meeting about it today at the White House. Jessica's got the scoop on what happens next. President Biden meeting with Kevin McCarthy today about how to avoid a U.S. default. They've now agreed on who on their individual teams will negotiate with each other. Jessica's been working on this all day. So, uh, tell us about the meeting and who has the upper hand at this hour. Right. So all eyes were on this meeting. You had all four members
9: of leadership from Congress and then President Biden. And I think a couple things that were key points to, to come away with. Number one, as you mentioned, they've now narrowed down who's negotiating. And, and Biden and, and Senate Democrats would push back on the word that I'm using negotiating. But the fact is, What do they want to be called? They they just don't want to use that word because, you know, the whole time they've said we will not negotiate over the debt ceiling. And now they are negotiating to get a deal to ultimately get this done. So we now know that it is Steve Reschetti and Shalana Young from uh, the administration and then Garrett Graves and Kevin McCarthy's staff members. And and these are people, these are the signals this is this is getting serious. So that is good for the American people in that uh, these are people that uh, hopefully can get a deal done and they will they will get in a room and continue to talk and continue to trade papers. The other thing that was important today is that we were told by um, the Democrats that came out that everyone in the meeting this time agreed to take default off the table. And if you'll remember, last time they met, uh, Kevin McCarthy would not say that specifically. When he, we asked him, when he would talk, he just would evade that question. And so now they're saying that everybody's in agreement on that. So
0: that kind of gets us a, a little bit, one step forward, let's say. <laughs> Guys, how funny is it that negotiate's a bad word? The American people want, Sarah, want these two to
11: negotiate. That's what they want. And That's so- the whole point of being in Congress. I mean, it <laughs> yeah. doesn't make any sense. But what's crazy about this story is I feel like it's deja vu. Like, yes. every year we hit this deadline, mm-hmm. we panic, and then eventually we hit it and it's fine and we, you know, pass the budget. We, hit, we don't go over the debt ceiling. But then this year, it feels a little bit different. Like, this year, it feels like we might actually have a problem.
9: Right. And we were talking about this when we were getting ready to come out here. This is different. And, and I mentioned this a little bit last night, too. We're precariously close to this deadline. And it is often that we are there on Capitol Hill talking to everyone about deadlines that are approaching and can they get this done. This is very, very serious to the extent that we've never in the history of our country defaulted on our debt. And that if we were to do so, the financial calamity that it would not not only uh, mean for our country but for the global economy is
0: very serious. But take us into those halls mm-hmm. since we're not in there what is the mood when you're I mean when you and reporters are running around yeah. trying to get comments why does it feel different?
9: It just feels like there is an acceptance that this time is different. A it's it we are so close to the deadline. B as as the years have passed and this for years was not a thing. They would just raise the debt ceiling. Remember this is money that's already been spent. It's not like they're authorizing new spending in this. This is paying our bills. Um, they would just raise it. And 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 then when President Obama was in office, it started to become more politicized, and that has only grown over time. And so here we are now, where you have some members of the House GOP who are adamantly against ever raising it, no matter what. They don't care. And that's different. We we really haven't seen a lot of that. And remember, with a four-vote margin with the House Republicans. Those votes really matter and those opinions really matter.
10: And one thing that that strikes me just talking about Capitol Hill stuff is when, you know, when you're negotiating over budget and, you know, it goes to reconciliation last minute or whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. you kind of have right up until the deadline. And, you know, you, you see reporters like yourself and others who are in the Capitol all hours of the night ordering pizzas, just, you know, trying to stay up with what's going on. With this one, just being close to the deadline can already have effects. Like, we've seen that. Totally. In past, right?
9: Absolutely. So in, in 2011, we just got close to it. Moody's downgrades our credit. It was tumultuous for the markets. It was tumultuous for the economy. And, you know, just broaden it out. I don't have to tell anybody sitting at home. Everyone's very aware. The economy is what it is. We are, we're dealing with inflation. uh They're trying to find the soft landing. Uh, they're always, you know, we've been concerned about a recession for months now. And we've been able to evade that so far. And now you're talking about throwing in the most giant, wrench we could possibly find.
0: Let's let's listen to what former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers is saying about where we are.
7: During the period when the default was being debated uh, in 2011, the stock market went down by a little more than 15 percent. Today, that would be in the range of six trillion dollars. that's $20,000 for every American, uh, almost, in wealth that at least for a time would be destroyed. Now that drives home your point. Right. Yeah,
9: <laughs> I don't have to say it any more clearly than that. And you think about people who are on fixed incomes, and and we talked about not being able to potentially pay military members, not being able to pay Social Security benefits. This really, the ripple effects are giant.
2: Uh, today also, do I see that a, a President Biden's trip was going to be cut short a little bit because yes, of these stops, right? that is right? a good
9: point, and we should talk about that, because he is traveling abroad. He's going to the G7 in Japan, but we learned today, to your point, Danny, that he had there was back and forth on when he continued on. He had planned to go to New Guinea and to Australia, and they ended up they're just going to postpone all of that and, and do it another time. Because, again, it's just a very condensed time frame uh, that we're working with here.
2: See, that seemed to me like, oh, this is serious now. The trips, they're getting <laughs> yeah, shorter. Right, like, yeah. that's, right, right, that's right, That's the real business now. Right, right.
0: People wanted to know, I mean, since the clock is ticking, are you going yeah. to adjust anything in your schedule? And it sounds like now they finally are. Right, they have. And so, yeah, so now we watch and we see, uh, can they get to a deal? Okay, we do have a little breaking news to get to right now because CNN can project that former Philadelphia City Council member Sherelle Parker will be the Democratic nominee for the mayor of that city. We just moments ago had seen where she was ahead of her competitors and now we can uh, project that she will win. She uh, was heavily favored against Republican, will be heavily favored, as you said, Danny, against Republican David O., who was unopposed in his primary in November's general election. If Parker wins, she'll be the first woman to serve as mayor of Philadelphia. So there you have it. More results coming in uh, on all of this, and we'll bring it to you as they do. Okay, meanwhile, two adults charged in Michigan after a seven-year-old brings a gun to school. This is a news story. We keep hearing about how somehow kids are getting their hands on weapons, and Omar has reporting on this story, and how two school districts are now cracking down on something that kids like to bring to school. Well, it's one. All right, two adults charged after a seven-year-old brings a gun to school in his backpack in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The mother, Aubrey Wilson, now facing a fourth-degree child abuse charge, and her fiancé, Chelsea Berkeley, charged with one count of felony possession of a firearm. Now, Grand Rapids Public Schools have banned students from bringing backpacks to school. Omar Jimenez is reporting on this story. I'm not sure that the backpack was the problem.
10: Yeah, I mean, look, the the backpack is actually, I I think, a... a an attempted solution in a situation where I think administrators and others feel like they don't have a lot of solutions to give. I mean, look, we've seen over 200 mass shootings across this country. A lot of them, some of them have happened in schools. In this particular case, you've got a seven-year-old who brings a gun unloaded to school, but a gun nonetheless. And those charges that were announced today stem from this seven-year-old bringing the gun to school on on May 3rd. And then a week later, on May 10th, in the same Grand Rapids school district, a third grader brings a loaded gun to school in their backpack. And I I want you to take a listen to the Grand Rapids police chief as he was trying to process today what was actually happening in a situation that at least he hasn't never seen before.
4: I have about 23 years of police experience, and I will say this is the first time and now the second time that I've ever encountered a child that small having a gun in school was new to me. And to see it twice in one week period was very
0: alarming. Yeah.
10: And, and so far this year in just that school district, this is now the fourth gun they've confiscated. And so that, I think, is part of what made them say, OK, until we figure out what's going on, we're we just going to ban backpacks Altogether, which again sounds extreme, and and honestly sounds kind of crazy to a lot of people looking from the outside in. But it it truly, I think, is coming from a place of desperation Mm -hmm. of we've got to figure out at least something. That we can control.
0: What do we know about this seven year old's mother and fiance? Any background, any criminal background, anything?
10: Yeah, so uh, one of the uh, the fiance has been charged uh, felon in possession of a firearm. So there clearly is a history there. Um, the They are also looking into the origins of this particular weapon as well. And when we talk about the backpack bands specifically, uh, you know, it's not just this Grand Rapids area that's dealing with this. If you just want to stay in Michigan, outside of Detroit, The Flint school district has also banned backpacks because they've said that they've been monitoring an increase in in threats in that arena as well. And just to illustrate I think the difficulty that these school districts have been wrestling with in making these decisions. I want to read a little bit of what the Grand Rapids Schools uh, school district has said at least the superintendent there saying that this is not a decision we've taken lightly and we know this poses a significant inconvenience for our families. I am more frustrated that a decision like this is necessary, but we must put safety first and that's what this decision is about. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's that that feeling that we didn't have any other choice. That we're now taking this step that maybe 15 years ago would have seen like, seemed like seems like something out of an absolute sci-fi movie.
9: Yeah, it seems extreme, right? It seems extreme. But it is interesting yeah. that we're seeing uh, these the the parent and the fiance being held accountable for this. We we've talked about the other Michigan case. In that case, it was a fatal school shooting where the, the parents, yeah. yes yeah. are being held accountable. Yes. Um, They were charged. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. And it makes you wonder if that is what if we're going to continue to see. That sort of trend, especially with kids seven years old. Yeah, if you're I seven mean, years so old, young,
0: why wouldn't right, you charge the parents? The, the seven-year-old can't be is, is not going out to buy a gun, right? You know, um, rational uh, decisions. So,
10: and, and actually, like in, have- in Michigan, the, the prosecutor mentioned it today that they're, they're they don't even have a mechanism to charge someone under ten years old in this situation wow. because of what you were saying. It's this a ten-year-old or a seven-year-old wouldn't have the forethought to to intentionally do this and understand what it means. And the police chief even said, look, if I was a seven or eight-year-old kid and I saw a gun lying around in my house, I'd think it was cool and I'd want to play with it and I'd want to take it and show my friends. And so that seems to be part of the issue here. But to your point... We have started to see a lot of districts across the country, police jurisdictions, actually crack down on parents and try to hold someone accountable for what's happening. I mean, look at this list alone. We were just talking about the one in Kent County, which is the Grand Rapids. Uh, But in Newport News, Virginia, if you remember, the the six-year-old student who shot his teacher, Mm -hmm. the mother of that six-year-old was charged. And then in Oxford, Michigan, this was out of a school shooting in November 2021. The parents were charged or it's been agreed to stand trial on four counts of involuntary manslaughter, uh, partly tied to uh, allegations of negligence around the gun, but also ignoring warning signs leading up to this. And that case is the one that could actually have a real precedent here, because we're not just talking about, like in the seven-year-old cases and others, of, oh, you just left your gun lying about and nothing happened. But in this one there were warning signs that were allegedly ignored. And for parents that are out there, parents of, you know, the, the worst nightmare of potentially being a parent to a, a potential mass shooter, it does create this new potential arena of criminal liability, depending on what happens with that case out of Oxford. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
11: You mentioned that this was happening not just in Grand Rapids, but in other places in Flint and in Michigan. Is this a problem that happens to exist in a certain part of the country more than others? I think about my home state of New Jersey. Yeah. Obviously, we have gun violence, but it tends to be, you know, a pretty split state, mostly blue. It's not a heavily gun and armed state. So is this something that is, you know, particular to Michigan in certain places or no?
10: Not particular to Michigan. I think, you know, going back to 2015, uh, we've seen... Instances where backpacks have been banned uh, in places from New York State to others in certain in certain districts. So it's it's definitely happened before. But I think in the last few years, in particular, it really has ramped up. Because when you talk about the debate of what you do around school safety, you know, people talk about hardening schools with exits and school security guards, all the way up to arming teachers. All these solutions, potential solutions, are thrown out there. And this seems to fit into that debate as we've seen that rise in mass shootings. Uh, But I should also mention a really important point is that uh, with all these mass shootings and in particular mass killings that we see, the vast majority of, of mass killings happen in private settings in the home. Not so much, even though they get the most attention and rightfully so, in public settings. And so when you talk about handling of weapons around the home, these are all cases that touch that. And clearly, there is data to back up that handling of weapons at home has t- accounts for a large number of, g- a large amount of gun violence in this country.
0: It's unconscionable, honestly, not to have safe storage. I mean, if right. you're, if you're yeah. going to be a responsible gun owner, you must have safe storage, particularly if you have kids. There's this horrible story, Danny, um, that we're just finding out about uh, in Texas. Yeah. A four-year-old yeah. toddler uh, found the their family's or the parent's gun and shot. His or her one-year-old,
10: one-year-old sibling, oh, one-year-old said Yeah, this was this was outside Houston, and this is it's it's another classic example of what we were talking about. Is that as the Grand Rapids police chief alluded to, if you're a young kid and you see a gun lying about, at that age you cannot rely on someone to fully understand the magnitude and the capability of that gun. So someone sees it, plays around with it, and this four-year-old ends up shooting their one-year-old sibling. Now, thankfully, the one-year-old is expected to be okay, but I can imagine a few inches otherwise and we'd be talking about a different story here and even more of a nightmare for these parents. But again, it's something that's very prevalent and we're seeing it play out in the form of backpack bans.
0: All right, thank you very much for all of that reporting. Meanwhile, a blunt warning from the top guy at ChatGPT. He shares his worst fear about artificial intelligence and Sarah's going to explain it next. A Senate hearing today on the dangers of artificial intelligence as tech industry leaders, including Elon Musk, call for AI labs to slow down their development, citing what they say are profound risks to society and humanity. The CEO of OpenAI, that's the company behind ChatGPT, told senators what he fears will happen.
10: My worst fears are that we cause significant, we, the field, the technology, the industry, cause significant harm to the world. Uh, I think that could happen in a lot of different ways. It's why we started the company. Um, It's a big part of why I'm here today uh, and why we've been here in the past and and we've been able to spend some time with you. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening, but we we try to be very clear-eyed about what the downside case is and the work that we have to do to mitigate that
0: Wow! Oh my God. Wow, <laughs> oh, man. guys, that is sobering. I mean, Motivating Sarah, speech. it is so <laughs> sobering because when the CEO of the company that stands to make money, to
11: profit from it, is saying, "Pump the brakes," I beseech you. Are they listening? Are lawmakers listening? They're definitely listening, and they're taking a hearing. Like, one thing I want to stress is that in the social media era, politicians were quick to embrace social media technology because it was good for their campaigns, reaching out to constituents. It took a decade for politicians to pay attention to people sounding the alarms about harms in social media. So the fact that this was rolled out publicly less than a year ago, and we already have the CEO of uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT, On Capitol Hill testifying, to me, means that they're taking it more seriously. Now, are we going to see any action being taken? That is the question. I think it's unusual to see a huge group of lawmakers come to consensus around any issue, but especially in big tech. But the problem is we do not have a good track record of passing any legislation around tech. We don't even have a national privacy law in this country, which is insane that we can't even get that passed. We can't get political ads transparency passed. We can't get algorithm-biased laws passed. And so if you are asking me if anything's going to get done here, like the answer is probably no in the short term, although I'm happy that they're taking it seriously. I think it's
9: chilling. It's so chilling. I mean, I'm kind of in denial about it. I want to just be like, ah, it's <laughs> fine. Don't worry. But like, you listen to that, and it's just it really does sober you up to that reality. And, you know, being on Capitol Hill, especially over on the Senate, it is made up of much older members of society. And I have a hard time sometimes understanding. AI. I do not claim to be a technologically savvy individual. However, I still have a hard time understanding it. And, and do you get the sense, Sarah, um, that, that these lawmakers
11: and their, probably their staff members even more so are really getting the gravity of this? That's the thing. I don't think they understand the technology itself. Heck, I cover technology, and it's hard for me to understand the technology itself. You talk to the CEOs of these companies, they don't know how these algorithms are truly working. But I will tell you, they do understand the gravity, and they do take this really seriously. I want you to listen to something that Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut said that was really eye-opening. This is an example of a senator who came to this hearing with open eyes explaining how important this was. Take a listen.
4: And now... Uh, for some introductory remarks. Too often, we have seen what happens when technology outpaces regulation. The unbridled exploitation of personal data, the proliferation of disinformation. The remarks were written by Chat GPT. when it was asked how I would open this hearing. What reverberated in my mind was, what if I had asked... It, and what if it had provided an endorsement of Ukraine's surrendering or Vladimir Putin's leadership? That would have been
6: really frightening.
11: Wow. Wow. <sighs> It's wild. But to the point before, he's actually using the technology. So he came prepared here. But the question becomes, what's going to happen next? Are we actually going to do anything about it? And I do think what was eye-opening about this hearing is we had some solutions that were proposed. That is rare for Mm -hmm. Congress, especially on tech. Where are those? It's a good question. I think a few of them were kind of controversial. Some of them seemed much more open to everybody. So for example, some folks were saying, could we create some sort of a safety review board in which before we deploy mass algorithms out for AI programs, they have to get reviewed and tested. One of the things that Gary Marcus, a former professor who's sort of a big thought leader in AI had proposed, was creating something similar to the FDA. You know, before we throw out a drug for the public to consume, we test it, et cetera. Another thing that they said was maybe we should be funding a trying to create a constitution for AI, which creates morals, values, and rules for how we you know, create different levels of algorithms and tech. Um, one of the things that I thought Sam Altman, who again is the CEO of OpenAI, proposed that was really smart, was should we just create a regulatory agency to solve this? Again, going back to the FDA example. In other parts of the world, by the way, they do have internet agencies. You know, In the UK, they have Ofcom, which regulates all of our communications, including online communications. Australia has made proposals like this. We are so far from that yeah. in the U.S. So while I think some of these solutions that were proposed are interesting, like I said, I think we're far away from implementing them.
2: So, Sarah, can I ask? Does it feel like? Because it feels like to me that the cat's kind of already out of the bag. Like, and I guess this happens all the time with, you know, evolving social media things that they're out there. People realize, oh God, they may be terrifying, and then only after it has already been used by millions of people do regulators maybe try to step in.
11: That's always the trend with technology. You, you know, you talked about social media. Like the example that social media giants love to give is cars. You know, it took decades for us to implement laws around seatbelts. Same thing with cigarettes. It took decades for us to implement laws around advertising, etc. What's different here, Danny, to your point, is that when this rolled out, There was 100 million people who instantly signed up for it. We've never seen adoption like that for consumer tech in my lifetime, for sure. And so to your point, the speed at which this is being deployed is so fast that I think regulators and technologists, like there's a reason that Sam Altman is coming out here and complaining and sounding the alarm You know, is because of this adoption. The other one that's been super notable and vocal on this is Elon Musk. Mm. So you have to remember, Elon Musk co-founded this company, and he walked away from it in part because he felt as though the technology was moving and innovating much faster than we could potentially control. And now Elon Musk, someone who's sending rockets up into space, for him to be saying that we might need to sound the alarm and pump the brakes is crazy. Listen to what he had to say tonight on CNBC.
4: I think it's, it's, it's very much a double, double edged sword. I think in, it's, there's, there's a, there's a strong probability that it will make life much better, uh, and that we'll have an age of abundance, um, and, and there's some chance that it goes wrong, um, and, uh, destroys humanity.
9: Hopefully that chance
4: is small, but it's not zero.
0: Oh boy! I mean, it could when destroy humanity. Is, yeah. Or
9: maybe it destroys. Humanity. Also, can we yeah. just talk about at some point, like what good things does this thing do? Because I'm sure the there's a lot of it. But uh,
10: I was going to say it? that with with that metaphor of you know cars and cigarettes. Well, so many people died before there were regulations with cars. So many people died because because of a lack of regulation around cigarettes. And so in this period, you wonder what damage is being done before. These things are actually being put in place. But to Jessica's point, it's there are some uses for this to actually enhance our lives. So, I mean, how do you strike a balance between, all right, we know that this could drive us off a cliff, but... <laughs> We're but driving. We could be driving. Hear
0: a song right, but it's yeah. worth it, guys. We could be
10: driving. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It, it's part of an enjoyment. It can enhance our lives. But yeah. But for... That's
11: not on balance good enough.
0: <laughs>
10: exactly. Yeah, I guess not. I guess not. Well, the, big, um,
0: the
11: big debate is actually jobs. This is where oh, we are trying to weigh the net benefit versus uh-huh. the net negative. So one of the arguments for things like chat GPT and artificial intelligence is that you're going to be able to displace a lot of very labor intensive jobs and you're going to to give opportunities to people to do much more you know exciting work. For example, instead of you know working every day copy pasting in an Excel spreadsheet, you're programming the bot to do it and then you can do a lot more with your life. Mm. The challenge though, and a lot of lawmakers and that Professor Gary Marcus put this out there today is how can you guarantee we'll actually be able to make up for the number of jobs lost? This is the thing that I think most Americans are going to be paying attention to. Once we start to see more jobs being eliminated due to artificial intelligence, that's when I think people are going to start to call their members of Congress. (laughs) And by the way, Sam Altman had made some comments about this. He was not afraid to say what the risks were, even though obviously this is his full-time job and his life passion. Really interesting, Sarah. Thanks so much for explaining all of that to us and scaring the living
0: daylights out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, up next, On the Lookout, our reporters tell us what stories they are looking out for on the horizon. And we are back with our fantastic panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call
11: this On the Lookout. Okay, Sarah, tell us. So we are in our third week of this massive writer's strike that's impacting the entire TV industry, especially the entertainment TV industry. This week, all the major networks are having presentations in New York to try to sell their shows, and they have no shows. Mm. So that's going to be something I continue to look out for, especially heading into the summer. If this doesn't get resolved, we might not have as fun of a TV season coming into the fall. Well... We're still on the air.
0: <laughs> Everybody can watch don't us you at worry. night. Don't you worry. You don't have to watch reruns. We're live. <laughs> okay, Danny.
2: Um Actually, well, Sarah brought it up uh, in her last segment. I'm looking ahead to the... Other repercussions of this Elon Musk interview uh, went on CNBC earlier tonight. It was also on Twitter, said a lot of things about a lot of different topics, including uh, he was pressed about basically some of the controversial things that he tweets sometimes. And he basically said, I'll say what I want. And if the consequences of that is losing money, so be it. He also talked about the morality of working from home. I think we're going to be talking about that interview for a little while longer.
0: Mm, OK, very interesting. Yeah. Omar.
10: Uh, I am looking for the governor of Minnesota, Tim Walz, to sign a bill that was just passed in the legislature there that essentially limits no-knock warrants to situations where uh, essentially them announcing themselves would create an immediate threat of death or injury. And that's important because uh, a little over a year ago, 22-year-old Amir Locke was shot and killed by— Through the execution of a no knock warrant. So, over this past year, people have been calling for limiting of these uses. And while it's not exactly what protesters had been asking for and what the family had been asking for, which was a complete ban, it's pretty close. And so, we're going to see if the governor signs it. He likely will.
0: Okay. Thank you. Yes.
9: I'm looking for, will George Santos be expelled from the House? Uh Democrats, Democrats filed today to force this vote to have him uh, expelled from the House. And remember, there are New York Republicans in the House that have called for him to go. However, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has stepped in and said instead he wants to refer this to the ethics committee, which would then require uh, two-thirds so they think they can kind of get around it. No one has to vote directly whether to expel or not. It's more do you refer it to the ethics committee or not. Uh, but, you know, the walls continue to close in around congressman santos
0: okay everybody thank you very much for all of your reporting really great to have you guys here so tomorrow on cnn this morning white house press secretary Karine jean-pierre gives an update on the debt ceiling negotiations and what president biden is thinking at this point that starts at 6 a.m eastern thanks so much for watching us tonight our coverage continues now